Red Salute. Welcome to the Manifestering Podcast. If you want to support this project, which allows me more time to produce and release content, you can do so on my website, manifesteringpodcast.com. There's a link to my Patreon, as well as a donation button that allows you to just donate through the site itself. You can also do so on my anchor.fm page. Just search for Manifestering Podcast. Thanks so much for helping me keep revolutionary media alive. Red Salute. Welcome back to the Manifestering Podcast. We're going to be continuing our read-through of Rethinking Socialism. This will be part three of a four-part series. Again, this episode going to skip an intro. I know we have a lot going on with COVID. One of the more heinous stories I saw was inmates at Rikers Island being offered $6 an hour to dig mass fucking graves. So that's where we are at with that right now. Again, I have plenty to say about that and I have questions to ask. We'll be doing that during the interview with Jay Mufuad Paul, probably April 6th or 7th. As always, if you have any questions, concerns, comments, death threats, or you want any physical copies of the books we're reading through, go ahead and hit me up on Twitter at ManifestPod. If you want to support the show at all, which is greatly appreciated, but again, completely unnecessary, you can do so at Anchor.fm. Just hit that little support button on Manifesting Podcast. All right, let's get back to the book. Since the beginning of the collectivization of agriculture, capitalist projects such as the Three Freedoms and One Contract competed with the collective ownership under the commune system. If capitalist projects had been able to develop and expand during the 1950s and 1960s, the commune system would have collapsed then. Through the competition between the socialist projects and the capitalist projects, the interests of different class elements of the society were revealed and articulated. The mass movements led by Mao and those in favor of socialist development promoted the socialist projects. During each of the mass movements, an antithesis was set up so that the class forces which opposed the socialist projects were forced to defend their interests openly. When socialist projects were carried out through mass movements, the interests of opposing class forces were revealed and articulated. Through the implementation of socialist or capitalist projects, certain class forces were strengthened and other class forces were weakened. At the same time, the different class forces reproduced themselves. What Liu was not able to do earlier, Deng did by his reform in the countryside two decades later, and he went far beyond the original project. Between 1979 and 1984, Deng took several steps to redistribute land to individual peasant households. Like the 1949 through 52 land reform, Deng's land redistribution was a capitalist project. The argument Deng and his supporters gave for dismantling the communes was, quote, eating from a big pot breeds laziness, unquote. While this might have been true in a small number of cases, Deng dismantled all communes in one sweep, despite the fact that the majority of communes were doing well. The decollectivization in the countryside broke up the worker-peasant alliance, which was the most important strategy during the socialist transition. Deng's land redistribution carried out with other capitalist projects he and his supporters instituted, such as the phasing out of unified purchase system, the privatization of rural industry, the reduction of state support for the production of agricultural machinery and other agricultural inputs, and eventually the privatization of state enterprises and the replacement of permanent state workers with contract workers, are all capitalist projects and an overall capitalist strategy. These capitalist projects have made it unequivocally clear in which direction the reform is headed. Deng's capitalist strategy reveals the class line of his reform. 
His reform deliberately broke up the worker-peasant alliance, and it strengthened the alliance between the bureaucratic capitalists and the new entrepreneurs, who are either party officials themselves, or have close connection with the party officials in high places. We need to go one step further to identify the class elements which supported Deng when he began his reform. Even though the majority of peasants benefited under the commune system and they enjoyed the better living conditions and the security of life, a significant minority were not content. There were several reasons for their discontent. First, in the very poor communes, peasants encountered many difficulties to increase production. Their grain production was often barely or not quite enough to feed everyone, so little or nothing was left after meeting the quota grain. In these communes, the distribution could not be made to each according to work. The poorest communes often had to rely on state aid. The strong members in these communes worked harder but were not rewarded accordingly. This created an incentive problem for stronger members of the team and brigade. Second and more importantly, Deng's support has come from the more well-to-do communes where there were substantial surpluses and expanded reproduction. By the late 1960s, many brigades and communes that had surpluses from agricultural production invested in manufacturing industries. By the mid-1970s, these rural industries prospered and these brigades and communes were able to speed up their accumulation of capital. However, at the time the state regulation restricted the capital accumulation, under state regulation, the brigades and communes had to set up aside a portion, about one-third, of their profit for agricultural development and another portion for welfare development before it could invest the remaining profit in industries. Also, rural industries were not free to compete with state industries in acquiring raw materials or in selling their products. These contradictions grew out of the expansion of productive forces, and not because of the stagnation of productive forces as claimed by the reformers. As Mao had warned earlier, new contradictions would arise if the coexistence of the two types of ownership, state and collective, were to last for a long time. The communes that became prosperous from developing their industries were also communes that were rich in agriculture and had surpluses in grain and other crops. China needed these surpluses for the poorer areas which were not self-sufficient. Thus, in the interest of the country as a whole, the rich communes could not be allowed to neglect their agriculture. However, for the rich communes, their return from investing in industries was far greater than investing in agriculture, and since the communes were collectively owned, it was not always easy to persuade them to sacrifice their own interest in the interest of the whole country. Third, when agricultural production increased and rural industries developed, incomes of peasant households and well-to-do brigades or communes went up. Many of these peasant households had a substantial amount of savings, but under the communes, these households had little or no opportunity of turning their savings into capital. These better-off households would gain more if they could put their savings into investments and to earn extra income from capital. Also, peasants who were physically strong and or were shrewd in dealings felt the workpoint system restricted them from realizing their full potential. In all above cases, the strong members could see how a capitalist project, such as the three reforms in one contract, would benefit them. Last, the capitalist project would especially benefit from those who were in positions of power to use this power for their own advantage. After the Cultural Revolution, peasants watched the cadres and local government officials very carefully. The masses scrutinized those in power and held their actions accountable, thus making it difficult for them to abuse their power. The development after Deng instituted his reforms showed that the government officials and party cadres have indeed been able to turn the power they possess into material gain for themselves. When Deng and his supporters introduced the capitalist projects, they appealed to these groups and solicited their support. When Deng implemented his reform after 1979, capitalist projects that failed to gain momentum in earlier decades had been revived. Deng sought out his supporters and, with their help, 
implemented his capitalist projects on a full scale and reversed the direction of the transition. B. Competition in the state sector. Within the state sector, the most important socialist project is the state enterprise. The goal of this socialist project is to proceed toward communism when commodity production ceases to exist and when the direct producers have control of the means of production. Therefore, during the socialist transition, policies in the state enterprise should promote more and more participation of production workers in the management of the enterprise and policies of gradually phasing out commodity production and wage labor. Within the state enterprise, the role of the management and role of the workers should become less distinguished. The wage system in state enterprises should reflect the amount of labor contributed, not the size of the capital. On the other hand, state ownership does not necessarily mean socialist relations or production. Under state ownership, capitalist projects can be instituted to promote capitalist relations or production. The capitalist project would expand commodity production and thus reinforce the dominating and the dominated relations in production. The purpose of production of the capitalist project would be value valorization instead of meeting the needs of the people. The commodity production under the capitalist project would reproduce wage labor and the distribution of product according to the size of capital, constant and variable capital. China's concrete experiences showed that within the state enterprise, there was continuing struggle between the socialist projects and the capitalist projects. The socialist projects and the capitalist projects competed on issues such as the autonomy of the enterprises, the employment status of state workers, the wage system, and other issues concerning workers' control. These issues reflect the capitalist or socialist nature of the state enterprise. If the state enterprises were to gain the autonomy to manage their own affairs and their performance in the manager's pay were linked to the profits or losses of these enterprises, these enterprises eventually would function very much like capitalist corporations. On the issue of permanent employment, although permanent employment status within the state enterprises would not guarantee workers more control of the means of production, the opposite of this policy, the contract labor system would effectively deny workers the opportunity to gain any control of the means of production. A wage system that emphasized material incentives and competition among workers for extra bonus would be more likely to divide workers and would also give the management more control over the workers. Before the reform began in 1979, the eight-grade wage scale of state workers differentiated the work contributed by workers only by their experience or years of service and skills. Workers who made significant contributions to increase productivity by their hard work, team spirit, and or innovations were selected as model workers who received awards and praise, but they did not receive any direct material rewards, such as higher wages, bonus pay, or promotion. This wage scale limited the degree of income differentials. The elimination of piece rate and bonuses took away the manager's power to use material incentives as a divisive tool to induce workers to work harder and to compete with one another. When the state subsidized food, housing, healthcare, education, and transportation, and other basic necessities of life, as it did in China, workers who received the lowest pay scale were able to afford the minimum standard of living. In fact, when major basic necessities were subsidized, it took distribution one step beyond, quote, to each according to his work, unquote. Distribution within the state sector from 1958 to 1978 indicated that reproduction of labor power, the basic maintenance of labor and its reproduction, was given highest priority in the production and investment decisions and planning. The capitalist projects, including the contract labor system, implemented since the beginning of the reform, did not originate with the current reformers. As early as the 1950s, Liu Shaoqi had begun advocating the advantages of the contract labor system. An essay from the recently published Labor Contract System Handbook 
revealed the history of Liu's attempt to institute temporary contract workers in state-owned factories. During the transition period, the capitalist projects compete with the socialist projects within the state sector. From early on, the bourgeoisie had its own plan to institute capitalist projects in the state sector. The essay stated that in 1956, Liu sent a team to the Soviet Union to study their labor system. Upon its return, the team proposed the adoption of the contract labor system modeled after what the Soviet Union had adopted. However, when the changes were about to take place, the Great Leap Forward started, thus interrupting its implementation. The essay continued in stating that in the early 1960s, Liu again attempted to change the permanent employment status by adopting a, quote, two-track system, unquote. Under the two-track system, enterprises were to employ more temporary and fewer permanent workers, and the mines were to employ peasants as temporary workers. Then in 1965, the state council announced a new regulation on the employment of temporary workers, indicating that, instead of permanent workers, more temporary workers should be hired. The regulation also gave individual enterprises the authority to use allocated wage funds to replace permanent workers with temporary workers. Again, according to the author of this essay, the Cultural Revolution interrupted Liu's effort to reform the labor system, and in 1971, large numbers of temporary workers were given permanent status. Although Liu could not fully implement his labor reform, he had, quote, experimental projects, unquote, going on here and there, and before the Cultural Revolution began, state enterprises had hired large numbers of temporary workers. As opposed to Liu's attempt to institute contract labor, the Anshan Constitution was the most serious attempt made to change the organization of work and the labor process in the workplace. The workers of the Anshan Metallurgical Combine took the initiative to lay out new rules to change the existing operation of their workplace. On March 22, 1960, Mao proclaimed that these new rules should be used as guidelines for the operation of state enterprises and name them the Anshan Constitution. The Anshan Constitution contains the most fundamental elements as well as the concrete steps in revolutionizing the work organization and the labor process of state-owned enterprises. There are five principles in the Anshan Constitution. One, put politics in command. Two, strengthen the party leadership. Three, launch vigorous mass movement. Four, systematically promote the participation of cadres in productive labor and of workers in management, and five, reform any unreasonable rules, assure close cooperation among workers, cadres, and technicians, and energetically promote technical revolution. The principles in the Anshan Constitution represent a spirit leading toward the direction of eventually phasing out wage labor. However, before the Cultural Revolution began, the factories only paid lip service to the Anshan Constitution. When management was in firm control of the decision-making process in running the factory, it did not see any need for a change. On the other hand, workers, who were content to have the state endowed privileges and benefits, assumed that the conditions of their employment and the benefits endowed were there to stay. The political struggle within the Chinese Communist Party over the direction of the transition was reflected in the factory and changes in the wage and employment policies. At times, policies issued from above pushed the implementation of the peace wage rate and expanded the employment of temporary workers. Then, often during mass movements, these policies were criticized and reversed. Before the Cultural Revolution, however, workers did not comprehend the reasons behind these reversals of the policies. They were not aware that Liu had made several attempts to abolish permanent employment status. Without the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution, Liu and his supporters might have succeeded in their attempts to repeal the laws that protected the state employees. 
If that had been the case, permanent employment status and other benefits endowed to a state employee might have become history decades ago. When workers participated in the mass movements in the 1950s and 60s, their class consciousness was gradually raised, but workers did not realize, until the Cultural Revolution, that class struggle continued after the judicial transfer of the ownership of the means of production to the state. It was during the Cultural Revolution, a period of intensive political struggle in the factory and in society at large, that many crucial issues were raised. The workers and cadres in the factories openly discussed and debated many important issues, such as material incentives, cadres' participation in production work, workers' participation in management, and factory rules and regulations. For the first time, workers in China's state enterprises grasped the meaning of putting politics in command and the other principles in the Anshan Constitution. The goal of capitalist projects is the opposite of that of socialist projects, and the method of implementation of capitalist projects is also drastically different from that of socialist projects. The implementation of capitalist projects in Deng's reform involves first installing legal measures and then pushing these measures from the top down to individual production units. During each period of the reform, from the decollectivization of agriculture to the reform of state enterprise and labor reform, legislation was passed at the top and then pushed on to the production unit to implement these capitalist projects. On the other hand, the implementation of socialist projects between 1949 and 1978 was through mass movements where the will of the masses was tested, verified, and articulated. Mass movements in the past created new ideology owned by the masses. The implementation of land reform we wrote earlier is a good example. While it is true that in both periods, the implementation of projects emphasized the role of ideology in changing the relations of production, and as a tactic, used propaganda in the media, there are, however, fundamental differences. During the previous period, before the very end, the expression of the masses was encouraged, while Deng's reform has suppressed such expression. Before 1978, the four Da's, Da Min, Da Feng, Dai Bianlun, and Dai Zaibo, meaning big voice, big openness, big debates, and big character poster, were concrete ways for this expression. When Deng's group took over the state machinery and amended the constitution in 1979, they took out the constitutional guarantee for the masses' right to the four Da's, as well as the workers' right to strike. After the reformers instituted policies to decollectivize the agriculture, they moved to institute fundamental changes in the state enterprises. On May 10, 1984, the state council issued a temporary regulation on the expansion of autonomy to individual state enterprises. On October 20, 1985, the 12th Congress of the Central Committee of the Chinese Communist Party passed legislation entitled the Economic Structure Reform. This legislation reaffirms the earlier temporary regulation that grants the managers and state enterprises the autonomy to manage their own affairs, and it allows individual enterprises to retain portions of their profits and to reinvest the profits as they see fit. The managers can also dispose of unused productive facilities by renting, leasing, or selling them. The management has the right to discipline, including to dismiss and promote workers, and to choose their own wage system. This legislation further stated that the state would no longer intervene directly in the affairs of individual enterprises. Instead, the state, like the capitalist state in the West, would only influence production through indirect policies, such as price, tax, and credit in loan policies. The effect of this new policy means that the state took the first step to relinquish its legal and economic ownership of the means of production. Under Deng's leadership, the current reformers first began their labor reform by introducing direct material incentives into the wage system of state employees. In the 1950s, wage payment by piecework was quite common, 
but it was abandoned during the Great Leap Forward. Peace wage rate was again implemented in the early 1960s, and then totally banned during the Cultural Revolution. As we stated earlier, from 1966 to 1979, workers and state enterprises were paid on an eight-grade wage system. The wage reform under Deng began by adding bonus pay to the workers' regular wages as direct material incentives, and in 1979 through 80, wage payment according to piecework was reintroduced. The reformers believe that these incentives will encourage workers to compete with one another, thus raising their productivity. Even though before the wage reform, cadres and workers were paid according to different scales, the wage reform adds a new feature that ties the amount of the pay to the position one holds. Before the reform, the wages of cadres went up only when they progressed from a lower grade to a higher grade. Currently, the management of each enterprise has set up positions such as the president, vice president, senior engineer, etc., according to the model of modern capitalist corporations. And each position entitles the holder to an extra amount of pay added to his regular wages. This change has created larger internal wage differences within enterprises. Then, the economic structure reform in 1985 gives management the autonomy to set up discretionary funds for themselves. The discretionary fund works very much like the expense accounts in the West. Workers resent the management's discretionary fund and call it the, quote, the management's little gold mine, unquote. The economic structure reform also gives the management the authority to pay themselves and or workers higher wages from the profits the enterprise earns. This change in policy destroyed the original eight-grade wage scale, which ensured that workers of the same grade all received the same wage, with small differences that reflected regional differences in the cost of living in all state enterprises. Thus, distribution according to labor contributed could be implemented nationwide. The new policy allows a worker in a profitable enterprise to receive several times the earnings of another worker of the same grade in an enterprise that incurs a loss. However, five to six years into the wage reform, the reformers realized that the material incentive in the new wage system did not work to increase labor productivity. Quite the contrary. The earlier wage increase without matched labor productivity increases were partially responsible for the accelerant rate of inflation in the mid-1980s. Instead of competing for bonuses, workers simply divided the bonuses as extra pay to compensate for the higher prices. In the latter part of 1986, the contract labor law was passed. This new law strengthens the legal power of the management in state enterprises. Since the passage of the law, all newly hired workers are required to sign contracts with the enterprises that employ them. The terms of the contracts are usually limited to one year. At the end of the contract term, either party has the right to unilaterally terminate the contract, not renew it for another year. The reformers hope that the enforcement of the new law will first reduce and eventually eliminate permanent employment status for state employees. Then, on April 13, 1988, the Enterprise Law of Whole People-Owned Industry was passed. It went into effect in August of that year. On the surface, the Enterprise Law is a separation of ownership and management, but the essence of the reform was a judicial transfer of ownership from the state to the enterprise. The first section of the law states, quote, the enterprises are granted the management rights of the state property. Such rights included the rights of possession, of usage, and of disposal of the property. The enterprise becomes an independent legal person entity, unquote. With the passage of the new law, the once state-owned enterprises legally separated from the state and became independent entities. The enterprise law grants the management of each enterprise the autonomy to make major decisions regarding production, including disciplining and dismissing workers. The use rate in the legislation implies the right of appropriation, 
including the disbursement of wages, when the state gives up its ownership rights of individual enterprises, it no longer employs the workers in those enterprises. After the passage of the enterprise law, workers in the formerly state-owned enterprises lost legal protection from the state. They are no longer legally entitled to those previously endowed rights and benefits.